Before the pandemic, communication and collaboration between academic researchers had become constrained. Universities created large legal teams dedicated to staking claim to each new discovery, no matter how small, and guarding against any information sharing that might jeopardize a patent application. The race to beat COVID-19 has not been run by those rules. Instead, led by Jennifer Doudna and Fong Zhang, most academic labs declared that their discoveries would be made available to anyone fighting the virus. Almost all of the scientists I talked to when writing a book on CRISPR and gene editing said that their main motivation was not money or even glory, but the chance to unlock the mysteries of nature and use those discoveries to make the world a better place. That was journalist, historian, and author Walter Isaacson reading an excerpt from his recent first opinion titled, CRISPR Rivals Put Patents Aside to Help in the Fight Against COVID-19. I'll bring you my conversation with Walter after a word from our sponsor. At Cytiva, our mission is to advance and accelerate therapeutics. Our customers undertake life-saving activities from biological research to developing vaccines, biologic drugs, and novel cell and gene therapies. Our job is to supply the tools and services they need to work better, faster, and safer. Learn more about Cytiva at Cytiva.com. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A.com. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Skerritt, editor of Stats First Opinion, our platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare providers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. This week, I have the great good fortune to be talking with Walter Isaacson. Walter, many thanks for taking time to talk with me today. Hey, it's great to be with you, Pat. You started us off by reading from your first opinion called CRISPR Rivals Put Patents Aside to Help in the Fight Against COVID-19, which was adapted from your just published book, The Codebreaker, Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing, and the Future of the Human Race. Congratulations on the launch of another book. Hey, thank you. It's really great to be doing biotech, too. It's the most exciting field. At never a dull moment, it seems, especially. Well, it turned out to be really relevant to our lives these days and uh, so exciting. It's, a, it's quite amazing. And you're up there in Boston where Kendall Square is in New Silicon Valley. Indeed. And in addition to the code breaker being about the development of gene editing, it's also about a fierce scientific and legal and maybe even financial rivalry. Can you sketch that out for listeners? Yeah, Jennifer Dowd along with her partner, Emmanuel Charpentier, in 2012, very famously, they just won the Nobel Prize for it, discovered how you could adapt the bacterial immune system known as CRISPR and use it as a tool to target and edit DNA. Uh, and then a race ensued between June of 2012 when they published, and that lasted about six months, where many different groups around the world said, okay, and we're gonna show exactly what you need to do in order to make it work in human cells. And in January 2013, three groups uh, crossed the finish line. Jennifer Doudna's group, Fong Zhang, who's at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard, and then George Church, who's a Harvard professor. 
And Fong Jang and George Church beat Jennifer by about two weeks to publication. But maybe more importantly, Fong Jang beat Jennifer Doudna to the patent office and has been able to get patents on the use of CRISPR for human gene editing. But to confuse matters, as we always have in this world, Jennifer Doudna and her team have also gotten patents on CRISPR for human gene editing. And so now there's a battle royale in the courts uh, to figure out where those patents overlap and who gets priority. Your first opinion shows a different side of this race with both the um, Feng Zhang and Jennifer Doudna teams working separately, of course, developing CRISPR-based home tests for COVID-19 and then putting that work into the public domain. What, did you th what do you think prompted that shift? Well, I think that we were all faced with this planetary crisis. And sometimes, you know, in the science fiction world where there are countries all fighting each other on Earth and suddenly an alien invader comes in, people collaborate and cooperate more. And that's a little bit what happened here. We knew we were facing a big, broad enemy. Fong Zhang, one day in February of last year, January and February, starts getting emails in Chinese. Now, as you know, Fong Zhang was raised in Iowa, you know, works in Boston. Uh, but the Chinese Cultural Ministry uh, here in the United States and other scientists in China think you have to help with this battle. And likewise, Jennifer Doudna, uh, one day brought her kid to robot camp, Dean Kamen's robot camp out in California, and then woke up in the middle of the night and said, I got to go get him back uh, because of the COVID crisis spreading. And they both turned their attention then to say, hey, can we use CRISPR, which is a way that bacteria identify and fight off viruses? Can we turn that tool into something that we can use as a detection tool, among other things, for COVID? And all throughout February of last year, the teams led by uh, Jennifer Doudna's crew, which include Lucas Harrington and Janice Chen at her company Mammoth, and likewise Fong Zhang, who had started a company called Sherlock, uh, they're racing to do that. And once again, they published papers right almost the same time, uh, Fong Zhang a day before. But this time, instead of applying for patents on it, they say, here, we're putting this in the public realm. We want everybody to see it. We want people to be able to build upon it. And Fong Zhang even tweeted out the paper from Jennifer Doudna's company saying, look, here's another one. We're all in this fight against COVID together. But I don't want to uh, minimize it. Uh, everybody's still competitive. Everybody's racing to publish first. And you know what? Competition's a good thing. Pure speculation here, but might the pandemic have any effect on their work going forward? You sort of alluded to that in uh, in what you read in the opening. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, once the patent battle is settled, and now the Nobel Prize uh, question has been settled, I think those are the type of things that spur competition more than collaboration, as much as we may love Nobel Prizes, it doesn't really lead to people being sharing and collaborative, just like the patent office doesn't lead to that. So those two things are going gone. But more importantly, as you said, Pat, uh, we've been reminded about why are we doing all of this? And that reminder was the coronavirus pandemic. It's like, okay, we're doing this for a big and noble purpose. And I've spent so much time with Fong Zhang and with Jennifer Doudna. I know that like almost every research scientist I've met, 
they really are motivated because they think they can do good for humanity. And this is just a real reminder of that. And I think it might recalibrate the balance because we want people to compete. And by the way, we want them to get patents and we want them to win prizes. But we also don't want them to be so motivated by patents and prizes that they forget that uh, creativity comes from collaboration. Your last book was on another kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, your last book was on another groundbreaking scientist, artist, man about town, Leonardo da Vinci. That was published in 2017. Were you already thinking of writing about gene editing and CRISPR as you worked on the da Vinci book? Yes, I started thinking about it in 2016, 2017, because uh, the book I did uh, on Einstein many years ago sort of introduced me to the brilliant innovation that had come from the physics revolution in the first half of the 20th century. You know, from Einstein's miracle year papers, you kind of get to you know, atomic bombs and space travel and GPS and semiconductors. And likewise, by writing about Steve Jobs and then another book called The Innovators, it was about the information technology revolution in the second half of the 20th century, which was, you know, based on the computer and the microchip and uh, the network, the Internet. Uh, and it had bits at its core, binary digits, just like atoms were at the core of the physics revolution. Starting in 2000, there was a revolution based on genes. We had sequenced the human uh, genome. And I ran into Jennifer Dowd, interviewed her at the Aspen Institute and other places, and I realized she would be a really great central character to tell this new innovation revolution, which involved RNA as the miracle molecule, and she had been the one who helped figure out the structure of RNA early on. And likewise, it involved CRISPR, and she was at the forefront of that, and she was then in the forefront of figuring out the moral and ethical implications of CRISPR. So I've been gathering string for maybe five or six years on this book. Well, that's interesting. I was going to ask, and you brought it up, so I'll ask now. You use Jennifer Doudna, um, who, as you said, is a researcher at UC Berkeley, as kind of the face of the, the Codebreaker story. What went into your decision to use her rather than Feng Zhang? Both of them have interesting backstories and scientific trajectories. Feng Zhang's life story is truly interesting, coming from China as a child with his mother to Iowa and being so embraced in Iowa, learning first computers and then biotech, and then becoming a great scientist at uh, MIT and Harvard. And I hope he has a biography someday. Same with George Church. You know, he's a mad scientist, uh, but <laughs> deep inside, to scratch the surface, he's a wonderful gentleman. And so there are a lot of people who deserve biographies. I picked Jennifer because, you know, she's a little bit further along. She has done a lot more in her career uh, than Fong Zhang. You know, she starts in the 1990s working with Jack Shostak and doing the structure of RNA and figuring out how RNA can be self-replicating and thus the uh, basis of all life on this planet, probably. And then she goes on in various ways to work on the CRISPR question and then the public policy and moral questions. So as you know, Feng Zhang is one of the heroes of my book and George Church is a hero of my book and Emmanuel Sharpenjay had a great time in Berlin hanging around her lab for a while. So they're all big characters in the book, but I wanted a central thread that would tie it all together from 
Jennifer Doudna being in sixth grade and thinking the double helix was a detective story and reading it one Saturday and getting inspired by Rosalind Franklin to say women can do science all the way through to being part of the teams that are now wrestling with the moral implications. So she's a, a persistent, fun, uh, interesting, creative person. And thus I found her a, an inspiring central character, but I hope I don't uh, give short shrift to the wonderful George Church and Fong Jang and Emmanuel Charpentier. And for that matter, six or seven other people who've worked in their labs and are the real heroes here. It looked like you were able to get extraordinary access to many of those folks. Did that start from the get-go, or is that kind of something that you have to work your way up to? It was very easy. I think I was uh, surprised at how accommodating and open Jennifer Doudna was. They'd come to the lab, work in the lab, meet all my students, uh, you know, go through things. And likewise, when I visited uh, the Broad in Kendall Square, uh, you know, Feng Zhang couldn't have been nicer. And uh, I got to spend time both in his lab, have lunch with him, many phone calls and emails. And of course, everybody knows George Church is the friendliest uh, mad scientist on the planet. And, and Emmanuel Charpentier, I think I used the word charmant. Uh, I never quite knew what that word meant until I met uh, Emmanuel Charpentier. But she has a French version of charming that I just found absolutely delightful. So they were all very open and accommodating, as were you know the people in their labs. If you read the book and look at the pictures in the book, it's all, you know, people you've not really heard of, like Enrico Linchao or, or Jenny Hamilton and others who were the graduate students who made this stuff work. Did you have fun doing CRISPR yourself? I was a little unnerved by how easy it was <laughs> to edit cells using CRISPR. Of course, uh, after I thought about it for a day or two, I realized it was uh, Gavin Knott and Jenny Hamilton, two graduate students in the UC Berkeley lab that uh, really taught me how to do it. And after we finished, we edited a, I edited with their help a human cell uh, and got a you know reporter molecule able to glow, all those sort of things you do. That's pretty exciting. But then we mixed it all with chlorine and flushed it down the drain. <laughs> so I didn't really unleash any new organisms in this world. That is good to hear. Yeah, you can rest assured. So Walter, one of my sisters, Ellen Skerritt, is a historian. Her specialty is the city of Chicago, where we were born and raised and where she still lives. She and I have talked about the problems that digital communication and documentation pose for historians. Do you find that shift a blessing or a curse or both? I thought it was a curse because I used to, when I did uh, Einstein or did Franklin or, you know, the wise men, you'd go through box after box of letters in Sterling Library or the, you know, the rare books library, New York Historical Society. Uh, but doing this book, there was something truly amazing, which is I got to report it in real time on my screens. I was in the Slack channels with all, with five or six teams in Jennifer Doudna's lab. I was at the Zoom meetings. I was able to sort of watch things in real time happen. And secondly, there was so much documentation, you know, all the scientific journals, but also being able to see all the drafts and all the emails that led up to uh, a particular discovery or a type of collaboration. 
And so, you know, I come at this as a historian who loves archives, but also as a reporter who loves interviewing people and loves kind of watching and taking notes. And this was one of those amazingly fun, exciting projects where I got to use all of those fingers and all of those muscles. Was there a nugget of information you got for this book, either a paper, electronic document, or an email that made you think, oh, this is great? When I started seeing the emails about the race that happens in 2012, where people are emailing each other in their labs or sharing experiments, saying, we've got it to work this way, or we're you doing this, or we're not actually getting these results, it opened my eyes to how science works and how it can be a race. You know, when you read the double helix, uh, Watson smuggles in large dollops of science in what is a very human race. And I thought, well, you know, maybe that's going to happen here. And indeed, it happened more than I expected. Larger than life personalities with uh, colorful uh, ways of doing things. And as I read the documentation of 2012, I said, this is the most interesting race I've ever covered. Hmm. Interesting. You know, as much as I really enjoyed the flow of the book and your storytelling, I was, uh, I guess enchanted might be the right word, by the epilogue. In it, you describe sitting on the balcony of your house in the French Quarter of New Orleans, watching a busy weekend unfold. And you wrote, I'm quoting here, as I surveyed the scene with all its natural variety, I pondered how the promise of CRISPR might also be its peril. What were you thinking about as you watched a weekend in the French Quarter? Yeah, I'm sitting here right now, right next to that balcony. I can sort of crane my neck and look out and see. And what that weekend was, was right before the pandemic struck. And all sorts of things were happening in the French Quarter. There was a naked bicycle race, which oddly enough was there <laughs> to promote traffic safety. Leah Chase, one of the great Creole, you know, uh, women of color, in her 90s who had run a restaurant that had been a hub for civil rights. She had died, so there were second line parades with people from all walks of life, all races and all groups of New Orleans celebrating the life of Leah Chase. Also, Dr. John, one of my favorite musicians had died and there was a second line for him as well. There was a Creole Tomato Festival going on at the same time, which uh, celebrates, you know, organic homegrown tomatoes that are not GMOs. And it was Gay Pride weekend. So there was a Gay Pride parade and every block seemed to have a block party for Gay Pride. So I'm looking down from my balcony and there are people large and tall and fat and skinny and uh, black and white and Creole and cafe au lait colored and all sorts of hues and, you know, straight and gay and trans and all these wonderful things. A group from Gallaudet University doing sign language. And you say, wow, this is the richness and diversities of the human species that makes us so colorful and makes us so strong and so creative. But also there's a peril here because CRISPR will allow parents maybe, I'm mean, going to talk decades from now, to say, okay, I want my kid to be tall. I want, to be, I want it to be this gender or this sexual orientation. Or I want it to be not deaf. I want it to be, you pick your things. Well, I guess that's an uh, uh, opportunity. But there's also a peril to the diversity of our species if we get too into gene editing. Now, a year later, I was sitting on the balcony not too long ago. It was, you know, after COVID had struck and 
everything's calm and, and, you know, a little bit locked down. And I'm thinking, okay, but let me not forget the promise of CRISPR too. It will help us fight uh, virus attacks, among other things. The one time it's been used for an inheritable gene edit and people got all outraged that the Chinese scientist did it. He did it to block the gene that leads to a receptor that can uh, be a receptor for HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. And that was premature, it was a messy thing, but people were against it in principle. And I'm thinking, okay, remind me what the principle is when we're having a full year here where we can't go out you know, and hear music because of a virus attack. Maybe we should be making our species a little bit less susceptible to viruses. So that ability, that epilogue, I write, and I write about it, that ability to just look at the passing parade of humanity and say, we got to be careful here. We got to go step by step. We got to go hand in hand because the slopes are less slippery that way if you're going step by step, hand in hand. But we have to figure out both the promise of CRISPR, we shouldn't flinch the way some people do about GMOs, but also the peril of CRISPR. And that's what this book is about. Well, we'll have to wait and see how the promise and peril both play out um, as we all go forward. Again, Walter, thank you for taking the time. Oh, one more thing to sort of channel Peter Fox, Detective Columbo. Hey, by the way, that was also Steve Jobs. Every presentation ended with, oh, and one more thing. <laughs> really? Yeah. I don't know who got it from whom. <laughs> My guess is that you already have your next project and your sites are underway. Can you give us a peek into what the next opus might be? No, actually, I don't. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here, you know, I usually give myself six months and juggle a few things. I, even back when I was wanting to do biotech and Jennifer Doudna, I had you know, like maybe Louis Armstrong, maybe I should do music. But, um, you know, I see some really amazing people of our day and generation, including Bill Gates, who I have an enormous respect for, Elon Musk. I think we may be in the middle of the story there, so it may not be ripe. Jeff Bezos is interesting, but then they go into the Wayback Machine. You know, when I'm studying about how Jennifer Doudna wins a Nobel for chemistry, you have to sit and start reading again about Marie Curie winning it for chemistry and physics. Mm. And I find her ability to connect those two quite interesting as well. So if you have a comment section to this podcast, everybody can vote. <laughs> well, whatever it is. I look forward to reading it and fingers crossed to having another conversation with you like this down the road. Thanks again for talking with us today. This was enormously pleasant and joyful. Thank you, Pat. Thanks for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney, our senior producer is Alyssa Ambrose, and our executive producer is Rick Burke. I love to hear from listeners. Let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show, or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com, and please put podcast in the subject line. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time. <laughs>